More now from the climate talks at COP27. Savendra Michael is a Fijian climate negotiator who knows what it's like to grapple with rising seas, more severe storms and entire populations having to move. He spoke to me about how he brings that personal experience to the negotiations and the new Kiowa Declaration. For our community adaptation, what, what has been happening in the communities is that they have been constantly in the cycle of recovery due to the onset and the recurrent nature of natural hazards that we are facing or experiencing, mostly climate-related hazards as well. Uh, and for them, adaptation is basically adjusting or, you know, being agile and uh, adjusting their livelihood systems, uh, adjusting to uh, the day-to-day activities, their replanting methods. They, uh, there's also uh, one of the things that they're doing now, as Daniel has spoken about, is the relocation aspects as well, where uh vulnerable communities are trying to adapt to the ongoing impacts of climate change and beyond that is uh is the solution to kind of relocate inland or upland uh as an option for survival um i think the question uh on hand as well probes very much towards the the discussion around loss and damage which is beyond the ability to adapt so compensation for non-economic losses that our people are not able to recover from, their loss of land, the loss of livelihood uh, sources, uh, like due to the due to the ongoing nature of floods. Um, you know, uh, there's also many people that are like leaving. Like, what happens to the relocated communities? Is there a sense of belonging question? There's a you know identity culture crisis that they can be experiencing as well. So all these factors need to be considered, and that's where this uh, discussion on loss and damage plays a pivotal role uh, uh, in the in the negotiations as well. And what's your community's current ability to pay for those adaptation measures? So currently, what adaptation measures uh, they're accessing is uh, paid through uh, various avenues, sometimes through uh, various NGO grants, uh, as well as uh, multilateral uh, grants that are coming through agencies like the UN, the uh, World Bank, and so forth. Uh, They are not directly accessible to the community, but what they do is they the communities work with these agencies to design or co-design adaptation measures for themselves. Um, and some of them uh, that they, they have, that we have been looking at is like, uh, for example, the agricultural um, uh, farms. So uh, moving towards nature-based solutions, how communities are like now uh, transitioning towards, uh, you know, uh, putting in, in place risk measures uh, so that uh, we call this risk-informed development, the aspect of integrating all aspects of risk into development planning processes so that they can have, have uh, you know, livelihood structures that are able to, re- uh, how do I say this, like uh, able to withstand the impacts of um, uh, climate change and also like nature, uh, climate-related hazards. So um, some of them, uh, we have seen like farm roads that are being rebuilt um, and then community access roads that are being rebuilt. And, and a lot of what we call like model farms where they uh, put in place measures uh, such as, um, you know, fencing, building the greenhouse structure in a way that 
uh, that is able to be reused. Uh, the components of the farm can be reused or re repurposed for replanting again. So these are some of the the simple steps that they're taking um, uh, that I can speak of from experience. Can you explain the importance of that recent Kiowa de declaration? So uh, the Kiowa declaration actually is uh, uh, basically grounded on the realities of what uh, uh, disaster affected communities or climate uh, affected communities uh, are experiencing. Uh, we know that uh, many Pacific Island countries are living with the impacts of climate change despite contributing least to the crisis. And uh, basically uh, what the Kiowa Declaration is doing is it's it's grounded on and it's united on Pacific voices calling on um, accelerated and ambitious climate action for increased and accessible climate finance for frontline communities. Uh, the reason we, the maybe what's more important is how the Kiowa Declaration came about as well. Uh, it was uh, grounded with uh, through the experiences of Kiowa, uh, island located within Fiji, and it's a relocated community from the, uh, the country of Tuvalu. Uh, this year marks the 75th year of relocation, uh, and it's situated just next to Rambi, which is also uh, a migrant community from the Kiribati. Uh, or the Banabans, as they would say, uh, and uh, that's been there for 88 years. So we, uh, a group of civil society organizations, went down to Kiowa to formulate this Kiowa declaration, calling uh, for a united voice on, uh, you know, more action. And within the demands are stories, stories that are grounded on realities of what frontline communities are going through, uh, how they are surviving, uh, you know, how they are continuously uh, being trapped in a cycle of recovery. Um, and uh, the the hope of keeping 1.5 degrees alive, as, as Daniel just meant, mentioned, how we are so off track currently. Uh, so, you know, the Kyo Declaration actually calls for complete phasing out of the fossil fuel and no, no new fossil fuel projects uh, and the end of financing for fossil fuel. Um, I think what's uh, important here as well is that our communities are being forced, uh, is the word I want to use purposively, to adjust to the new and harsh realities. And uh, we need uh, the support of uh, countries that are, um, you know, developed countries that are to support the communities to adapt with the impacts that are already underway. Um, I guess one thing that also is quite unique in the Kiowa Declaration is the discussions that draws on from Daniel, uh, which is around the uh, standalone uh, financing facility uh, for called the Kiowa Financing Facility. And so what the community members and the elders were demanding for a direct access to uh, grants uh, which can help compensate for the loss and damage, but also help with the adaptation or implementation of adaptation projects within this community. Uh, and uh, countries, uh, not only for Fiji, but countries that are most impacted by the crisis needs to have a clear kind of uh, plan and system for how they will get the finance. So I know that this, this is just a starting point, as I like to emphasize, uh, and there will be some discussions going forward from, from COP on how to mobilize Kiowa declaration to uh, 
gain the support of uh, uh, of leaders, world leaders, to mobilize financial resources that are directly accessible by communities. You've seen these effects, you've lived them. How do you bring your experience to the negotiating table at these closed-door meetings? Um, yeah, this is a very good question. I guess uh, uh, for negotiators such as myself, uh, it's always being grounded on the realities. And when we have interventions coming up, it's always asking the questions, the critical questions of, you know, what does it mean for us back home? What does it mean for the Pacific people? Uh, how can this text be interpreted to them and whether they would be able to you know, relate uh, to the kinds of discussions that we are having? Uh, as you know, that within the negotiation space as well, there's quite some intensity in terms of the discussions uh, around the tax formulation process. So sometimes, you know, there is a... Um, continuous uh, back and forth pull and push factor around, you know, what language uh, uh, to go in, which sometimes can be used as a strategy to buy more time. Uh, and that is a strategy that has been kind of previously explored. But, you know, for us that are, uh, for most Pacific Island people that are grounded with the realities, they keep that that's a way to, you know, be in the room and keep pushing back and saying, no, we cannot no longer you know, have you to go on this direction or water down the tax. Uh, we need some concrete actions and commitments that come out from this process because it's not about the economics or political strategy for the Pacific. It's about the negotiations and the tax uh, that can met is a matter of our matter of our survival for the Pacific, right? So I, I guess, uh, yeah, uh, it's it's a reminder. Uh, the experiences are a reminder of why we are here in the and in these spaces and and also would like to acknowledge it's also uh it's also useful and uh uh critical uh in terms of grounding other people in the room with those realities uh, and with colleagues like daniel i'm always uh, you know able to have conversations around you know what does it mean for the people how can this be translated into simple language and so forth so and having this conversation with a group of other negotiators outside the pacific that may not have some contextual knowledge of what is happening in the pacific is 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 kind of progressive because it helps them kind of contextualize where we are coming from why we are pushing back and so forth so personally at a personal level i guess this experience has really helped um, and it, it it gives you a more uh, responsible position to call for demands and 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 to uh, to urge people to you know uh, reconsider uh, uh, what what has been asked on the floor and, and make submissions that are quite grounded on the realities. Yeah, that was Fijian climate negotiator Savendra Michael, and we'll post that full interview online.